I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Rule the World, the ultimate power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host, Paul Furlong. Hello and welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. My name is Paul Furlong, Creative Director at Opus Media, and I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you know the power of storytelling. And I want you to bring the power of storytelling to your own writing with Roger Shulman at thewritercoach.com. Roger's unique coaching method connects your personal story to whatever you're writing, giving it heart and depth. The result? Your presentation, website copy, keynote address or screenplay becomes compelling, entertaining and persuasive. Roger is the winner of a British Academy Award and nominee for the Oscar and the Emmy. So go to thewritercoach.com and schedule a free discovery session. Let Roger bring the Hollywood to your writing. Today's guest is Tony Woolerscroft, photographer to the stars of the rock and roll world, having spent 20 years photographing the Foo Fighters, 15 years photographing the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and plenty of time photographing other artists, including Gorillaz, Robbie Williams, Duran Duran, 1975, Bush, and many, many more. So, Tony, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Paul. Thanks Glad for, to be here. Thanks for coming and spending some time with us. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit more about you and uh, what you spend your time doing. So, I've been a, a professional photographer now for 29 years. I went full-time in 1990. Um, in previous lives, I had an apprenticeship as a, a young lad, uh, pipe fitting, of which I think in them days it, it was a vehicle to to earn money and to go to concerts. Um, the funny story with my photography is I fell into it. It wasn't something that I aspired to be. I, I, I never played an instrument. I, I think I should backtrack, actually. I, 
<clears throat> I got bitten by the punk rock bug at, at 12, 13 years old, much to the being horrified by my parents, you know. Mum's classic comment to me was, where did we go wrong? <laughs> because it, it's hard, for, I suppose, for the generation these days to understand the outrage of things. And just going slightly off is, I'm kind of glad I grew up when I did because there was youth culture. And I don't feel the youth culture anymore. I had a great time in my youth. I started going concerts at 13. I was lucky enough to see The Clash four or five times. You know, all the bands that came through Hanley, Victoria Hall, Stoke-on-Trent, I managed to catch from 78 onwards. So, and then it, it evolved it where most, most kids get a job, they meet a girl, fall in love, buy your house, get kids mine didn't I kind of like the job I got was okay I didn't really enjoy it if I'm honest you know pipe fitting's great and I'd probably been a bit richer now and a bit more money but it was a vehicle to earn money because that meant I could go and travel and see other bands the great thing was when the company I worked for worked in London that meant I could go look gigs in the early 80s, certainly, five nights a week while I was working in London. So it was fantastic for me. Quite often, the guys would have to drop me at the motorway junction on the way home because I'd be hitching to another show somewhere else. That's how it was in them days. You know, you'd hitch around concerts, you'd find groups of friends that were with bands, and you'd all meet up. And um, it was a fantastic time, and... On the road and in them adventures in the early 80s, I met a, a pivotal person in my life who's still one of my best friends ever in the world and, and who helped me tremendously in my photography, by the a guy by the name of Craig Duffy. Craig at that time was like me, gigs seven days a week, but Craig also worked for a concert promoter by the name of John Curd in London. So occasionally, if John was putting on one of the shows that we were all going to, I'd be able to blag in. <clears throat> and um, Craig would be doing the the chimping, it's called, the ins and outs, where you put the PA and lights in and the desk and everything. Then you've got to pull it out at night. So it's a local crew kind of thing. Anyway, um, I couldn't play an instrument. And around about 1980, so for, I would say really from 82 when I got my driving license and before that <clears throat> up until about 85 86 I was gigging constantly from different bands and and round about 1986 end of 85 I started knocking around with a band from Bradford called New Model Army and New Model Army completely different from bands today these days when you get to a certain level, the New Model Army actually were when I started knocking around with them. They they were playing decent-sized venues. They'd actually had no rest. There was a big chart hit for them. It was top 20 in, in the UK. and um, But the band were very accessible. Everybody came in at Soundcheck. You got to know the crew that were following them around, which was a large crew. You became one of the family kind of thing. And the band were very accessible as well. They, they would come out, they would chat, you would knock around with them. 
and everything else. And the, <clears throat> the drummer became one of my best friends through the advert of this. Just uh, somebody I uh, knocked around with, and he was a great guy. Unfortunately, Rob passed away with a, a brain tumour a few years ago. And um, around this time, which was about 986, my dad gave me an old Kodak camera. And um, it, it was one of, he bought it. We lived the first three years, two years of my life in Singapore, um, in, the, in the Far East. And he bought what was then classed as one of the first SLRs, where it was very basic, fixed lens, 35 mil, uh, to judge the distance between me and you, which is four feet. You'd have to set that on the lens. You'd have a handheld light meter to take a meter reading. You'd set your aperture and your shutter speed depending on what film speed you were using. So um, my dad, around that time, take, used to take his camera on holiday. I'd finished going on holiday with them for years. And um, he bought himself a new SLR and he, he came in my bedroom one day and said, do you want this? You know, I went, oh yeah, please. And put it in the bedroom drawer and forgot about it, basically. <clears throat> so in, in 87, New Model Army were playing a, a gig outdoor in summer in Canvey Island, just off South End. And I, I thought, me and the car full were going down, I thought, I'm going to take that camera down there. Dad, how, how do you use this? So he said, gave me a quick lesson. I loaded it up with film, off off we went. I had a fantastic time there, I popped pictures and everything. And when I got back, I, I developed the film. Some of them weren't bad. And I suppose, Paul, at that point, you, if something snags your interest and, and, and you've got it, kind of like you've, you've grasped it quite easily. Um, you start looking at magazines and everything a little bit differently. You, I used to buy sounds every week. You had the NME sounds or the Melody Maker. I bought sounds because it was a bit more punk rock, I suppose. And um, I used to look and think, wow, well, how's he got his picture in there? And oh, okay, that's interesting. I wonder, how you, you know, it, 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 it changed my mentality, I think, more than anything. And the great thing is with, with knocking around with New Model Army was, I was given an access all areas. You, I could go and come and do whatever I wanted. So they went out on tour on the Ghost of Cain. I went out and took pictures. And I, I remember a phone call one morning. We were playing Birmingham, I think, that night. And the tour manager, Tommy T, I oh, bring your camera. I need you to bring your camera that night. So, okay, brought me camera. And they did a, a, a rock and roll cookbook they were doing in them days. Those ideas were out there. And they'd ask New Model Army come up with a couple of recipes. And I had to go in and take pictures of Rob because he did spaghetti bolognese. And um, they had Jules and Justin doing something else. And I did those pictures. But they were the first pictures I had in print properly. So uh, it really snagged my mind at this point. So I suppose the next thing, really, I was still doing my job part fitting, but as you know, I was learning in them days as you just come out of an apprenticeship, you, you're the kind of like first in through the door, first out if the work drops kind of thing. And um, again, I, I had the second stroke of luck with me photography is Craig Duffy, again at the time, started working for John Kidd in London full time, promoting John's concerts, straight music, whether or not it be 
gigs in Birmingham or London or whatever. And um, Craig gave me photo passes to any shows that he was doing. So at the time, which was roughly the end of 87 into 88, um, I did Run DMC when they promoted that in Brixton. I did, also did it in Manchester and then I did the Stray Cats. I did New Model Army and then I think Craig did one of the Megadeth shows and everything. So I, in the end, I got a portfolio that was a little bit varied. It was all live stuff and, and everything else, but it was kind of varied. And in 1989, I decided to take a week off work and, and go to London and, and take my portfolio around the magazines kind of thing. And I looked at what was on the shelves, and I suppose that's a major difference of, of what happens now to what is then. When I first started, there were so many magazines. Metal Hammer, Kerrang, Metal Forces, NME, Melody Maker, Sounds, Q. Um, there was like at least, oh, Raw. There was at least 10 magazines that you could look at, but I thought the bulk of them will be at have established photographers. So let's look at something that's a bit newer kind of thing. So I, I picked Roar as my main one to go and see, but I also went to see Sounds and, and a, a couple of other ones, and you got the kind of like nice nod, oh, yeah, not so bad, yeah, kind of interested, you know, we'll give you a call. But Raw were kind of really interested. Quite simply, as the magazine had only been on the shelf 12 months. And I suppose the second bit of luck, well, not luck, but they were after somebody who was a little bit more regional rather than everybody they worked for worked in London. But magazines wanted the gig review from Liverpool or from Nottingham or from Manchester. And actually, where I live in Stoke, it's not that far from anywhere. So I was easily moving around kind of thing. So I walked away from Raw, smiling kind of thing, and thinking, hopefully I'll get a call. And three weeks later, I did in 1989. I got a call for my first gig to go up to Newcastle-upon-Tyne and um, do Creator and Raven at the old Mayfair Club before it burnt down. And it was a real eye-opener for me as well. I'd had the luxury of, of shooting quite a few bands where they'd started putting a barrier up to the front of the stage. None of that at Newcastle Mayfair. I had to run in at the beginning, get to the front of the stage, and then lo and behold, it's crushed behind you. And in them days, the thrash bands had loads of stage divers. So it was a real eye-opener for me. And not only that, the second eye-opener for me was a, a lot of my portfolio had been built on black and white and going in the dark room and everything. And this they wanted on colour transparency. And, you know, the thing is with, with colour transparency that probably most of your listeners won't realise if they're of certain ages, you have to get your exposure right. Most things can be corrected in printing like they can corrected in Photoshop. Colour transparency, you didn't have that luxury. Once it went in that machine and came out, it's a positive on a little slide. You were stuck with that exposure. So if you hadn't got the exposure right, you were knackered with it. So that was an eye-opening. But my first job went really well. And and that was it. That was me, me foot in the door a little bit. Went out and bought me 
a bit better Camry, kind of a kind of name one with the drive on, and, and and off I went, kind of thing. So let's turn our attention to how a picture tells a story, particularly in your world of music. How does a, a still image capture a story, and, and how do you approach that? In photography, there are many different types and genres of photography. And at the moment, believe it or not, I've been watching quite a few war photographers and and certainly that genre. On Netflix, there's um, there's one documentary on there called Conflict Photography, and there's another one on called Honduras, which is about a guy called Chris Honduras that got killed with Tim Hetherington, who was a UK photographer, and they got killed in Masrata in Libya. And I think sometimes when I looked at his stories, he is telling the story of, of what happens there. And, and one that he won a lot of acclaim for was, he was in Liberia, I think it was, and there's, they were fighting, two African factions were fighting over the this bridge kind of thing. And he had one guy running across the bridge with a rocket launcher on his shoulder, cheering up in the air because he just hit the target. And that went... And I suppose in, in my world, there isn't that kind of impact. But I would say... A couple of pictures really spring to mind. I, I changed my way of thinking um, halfway through my career, really. And when I first started on on Raw for the first five five and a half years of uh, of being full time professional, the magazine was doing great. And then, but what we found was we'd been bought by the same company that owned Kerrang and and. Kerrang were cherry-picking anything that they thought if the uh, editor was good or any of the writers, Kerrang were cherry-picking them. And our rating started to dip in that law. And in 95, they decided to shut the magazine and it was a bit devastating for me. And um, when we were in the meeting, I remember Kerrang was on the next floor above and um, I came out of the magazine thinking, shit, what am I going to do here, you know, the the shutting it in and Claire Dows came down from Kerrang and said really like the stuff that you do and the access you get to your man would you like to come and work on Kerrang I was like wow and one of the first jobs I gave Kerrang was a, a show that nobody else could get into it was a benefit show that the Chili Peppers did on the eve of the UK tour at Subterranea and um, bang you know I, I gave Kerrang something that they couldn't get but Actually, in the January, I got the offer to go over to the east coast of America with with the Chili Peppers. And um, I remember I'd done four or five shows with them and uh, we did this brief setup in one of the showers in, the, in this... They were playing ice hockey arenas mainly and um, or, or basketball arenas, certainly. And... Um, Flea stood for one roll of film on my medium format camera, which was 10 shots on my RB67, and walked out. And Anthony pulled me to one side and said, we love you being around and everything, but for you to get more out of this, you need to start documenting 
more time with us on the road. And I think when I actually sat back and, and looked at Anthony, it looked at what Anthony had said, I kind of understood where he was, that he sort of then telling the story a little bit of them being on the road and, and everything else. So your question is, one of the main shots I think that I've took of the chilli peppers, it's perhaps one of my more favourite favorite one, actually it's two pictures come from the same show. The first, the, the first of the pictures is a bit of a story behind it. Is basically, Dave Navarro left after the Jap Japan gig, and in 98, John Frusciante was asked to rejoin the band and rejoin the band. And I was told they were playing two gigs. They were playing the 980 Club in Washington and RFK Stadium the day after with the Beastie Boys, the Free Tibet concert. So you're asking me if, if my pictures tell a story. The two important shots came from that free Tibet gig, really. The 980 Club was a great gig. It was John's first show back, and then everybody was high expectations of, of playing a 25-minute slot with the Beastie Boys, you know, and Pearl Jam and, and all the rest at RFK Stadium the day after. Little did we know that halfway through... The Saturday, a massive electrical storm hit Washington and the stadium was struck by lightning. A girl was hand holding one of the handrails and it nearly killed it. So the show was immediately cancelled that day. So everybody's disappointed, worried about the girl and, and all the rest. So we went back to the hotel and we were told the show would start the day after an hour earlier, and the bands that didn't play on the Saturday would get 20-minute slots, everything else. So everybody showed up, and then it was announced that the Chili Peppers wasn't time for them playing. Everybody was really bummed and kind of angry that they couldn't play and, and all the rest. So there was a long association with Pearl Jam, with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and um, Pearl Jam gave up the last 15 minutes of their slot and their encore didn't tell the organisers so the Chili Peppers could walk out, plug in and play. And the first picture that I think that went viral, as I suppose you'd describe it these days, but told a story was the unity of the band. And just before they went on stage, they all got in a huddle. And I didn't know this, that... When John was in and before, that's what they used to do before they all, they were brothers together and before they played, they'd all stand in a huddle, say a couple of words to each other, go out and play kind of thing. But they were standing behind this giant curtain and I photographed that. That shot then later became the back cover of Californication that sold over 15 million copies. So pretty big thing for me, kind of. The next shot I think that's, was, I think, during Give It Away, where Anthony used to play the guitar and then throw it to one of the crew members, Dave Lee, because I knew this. I, with the, the man only had 15, 18 minutes to play. Um, I had a fisheye, wide-angle lens on, by the side of Dave, pointing to the crowd with all, while Anthony launched the, the guitar in the air across and... That told the story of their show 
playing there in front of something like 100,000 people kind of thing. So they had two moments, I think, that told the story, certainly of the band being back together and being brothers, and John was back in the band. And so what elements do you think there are in those two photos that make those photos so special? I've always said that my job is, and I always put this in an email if I'm pitching to a band for work or whatever, it's not to party with a band, it's not to thing. It's to capture a moment, a moment in time. It's a moment that freezes that little bit. And I think that's what you're looking for in a picture that, you know, when they're standing in the huddle is, oh, I wonder where that was taken, I wonder. You know, it, it makes you think about a picture, you know, it makes you look and 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 takes your mind to the picture and, and what was going on at that time. It's capturing a moment in time, I think, you know, and for the Chili Peppers, Flea picked the picture for the back cover because he said he loved it, you know, he, no one had ever photographed the huddle before and I'd... Manage and Flea was the one that was abs- that was desperate for John be back in the band because he played so well with the band and you know and so I think it, it's capturing that moment in time and it means different things to different people kind of thing you know and I think it should provoke an emotion as well when you're looking at it you know I look at some Jim Marshall's work and Jim Marshall was probably the the godfather of what I do he was the first rock and roll photographer. He, he was, came from San Francisco in the late 50s and then all the way through the hippie thing and in, in the 60s and then, you know, shot Woodstock at the end of the 60s and some of his moments were capturing that moment in, in time. And I think that's, that's the thing, you're actually freezing a moment in time from that period as well, you know. It's kind of massive luxury these days with digital is you can, if you go in wrong, you can desperately put it right there and then kind of thing if you've got any ounce of photography, you know what I mean? When you're shooting on film, you kind of like to know your stuff a little bit to, to A, capture that moment and, and, and B, get it correctly exposed kind of thing. But I think a, a picture should take you to that moment and, and make you think of it. That makes sense. <laughs> I think in every other storytelling art form, there is that sense of, or that luxury of time, isn't there? So if you think about a book, there is that temporal dimension. Mm-hmm. If you think about a film, yeah. there's that temporal dimension. You don't have that luxury when you're taking a photograph to tell that story. So how do you work around that? I think you're looking, if I'm honest, Paul, it's a moment in time in that show, whether or not the lighting's right or anything like that that's going on. I, I've just been out with nothing but thieves, and um, most of the really nice images I got were kind of like silhouettes with just a slither of light that you could anticipate right from that moment. I remember everybody saying to me when I first started shooting in 1975, I hated them. When I shot them, it was all silhouettes. You couldn't see the band. That's what the band loved. You know what I mean? They loved the fact that it was silhouettes, made you think about the picture a little bit. They wanted everything in black and white because that's what they felt looked the best kind of thing. So you're after that little moment where the lighting's just perfect or you know he's going to jump in the air or you know he's going to do something 
that little bit different. So Tony, traditionally in storytelling, and from primary school we're taught this, that a story has a beginning, a middle and an end. Yep. That's not possible in a single photo, is it? So how would you approach that when it comes to storytelling in a photograph? I think it goes back to Paul again of trying to capture that moment. What, what, what my job is when I'm storytelling, certainly on the road with the band, is giving that person a little bit of a glimpse of something that they don't normally see. So you're always after that little moment of the sound check with the empty hall, they're having a laugh backstage, you know, whether or not he's playing daft tricks of trying to get the water bottle stand up on its end or, or travelling, you know, from different country to country. And you're always after of, of, of capturing that moment that encapsulates all of that. Or it can just be that feeling of that show, uh, the, the guitarist at the end holding his bass up to the crowd he's enjoyed the show that much and he's turned or the band calling me on stage at the end not like last time was nothing but thieves at Alexander Palace I was by the side of the stage they had such a great gig there 10,000 people sold out you go out you have to stand on the rise to take a shot of them in front of all the people because it's all lit up and that tells the story in the moment of how much the band have play, enjoyed playing in front of the crowd and how much the crowd have stayed at the end and, and are in on the picture. So you're always after that, that moment that tells that little bit of a story. A lot of it goes down to access and, and it, it depends how much you're with the client, whether that, that be a sports star on a book cover or, or a band and how much they want you to tell the story. Now, I would say nine times out of ten, I'm giving what everybody else is, which is three songs, no flash at the front. And in that time, I have to get the best shot that I can of of what's happening in front of me. It's always a lot more difficult to tell the story at, at that kind of thing. So a lot of different elements come in to that. You know, the Sergio Aguero giving me two hours to do all his pictures. Or the Stephen Gerrard giving me 60 seconds the last time. You, you get the shot, it depends on how deep you want the shot to go and, and how much other stuff that, you know, certainly some of the Aguero stuff I did outside was as nice, you know, that got used everywhere. And so quite a famous story. that I did a book cover by a guy called Keith, Keith Gillespie through Sports Media. And, and Keith had blown a million quid gambling. You know, he'd had a big money move from Man United to Newcastle. And on his darkest day, I think he, he blew something like 85 grand. It just got, could have been even more than that. I can't remember the exact figures. But we wanted a haunted look on his face that told the story which you managed to get. Just simply looking into his eyes and his soul. So... It's achieving that by different poses or certain lighting or whatever. So it depends on on which way I'm approaching the story more than anything else. Is there an element of composition to tell the story? Yeah, 
I think I think like when I come when I come for a, a portrait, you, you certainly. I, I know the Keith Gillespie thing. He, he got quite a haunted look on his face, you know. Not through me saying Keith looked haunted. It was just how he he was kind of thing. But certainly, you know, it was a very interesting story. But when I come like when I did the Bruce Grobelar thing, they were hell bent at first of having. Bruce dived towards the camera in a goalkeeper's outfit, even though he's 50-odd or 60-odd or whatever he was now. And he actually said, oh, I'm up for this. And then, of course, when it comes to it, it's like a bit physical for kind of an older guy kind of thing. So you kind of like sculpting the light on Bruce's face. And Bruce, I didn't realise he'd gone through a lot in Zimbabwe and things like that. So, you know, it's making his face... Tell a story and look interesting, you know. Certainly with the jung, you know, the jungle kind of like headline thing. So you're always looking at sculpting light on somebody's face, I suppose, and and different using your different elements like beauty dishes and and then trying to kind of like shape the light from the beauty dish, which is a lighting attachment, by the way, um, around somebody's face. So yeah, there are elements like that that go into it. You're also restricted by time as well. <laughs> and I've had things where things have not gone right on, on shoots, certainly. I mean, bless his soul, he's doing fantastic at ranges at the moment. I think his name on the cop still. But Stephen Gerrard would not give you the luxury of time photographing him. And certainly the last time that I did Stephen when he announced he was leaving the club, he'd, he'd retired and everything else in that famous season with Brendan Rodgers at the end. I was working on a, a, an official book, that, uh, sorry, a book that ended up being official um, with a, a lady that you've interviewed before, Rangeld, and it was all the captains that were still alive that would do something since Shankly, while Shankly had been in charge. And, we got to Steven Gerrard and we knew there was tremendous pressure that season. Liverpool were going for the title and it, it was a bugger to nail down. It really was. And, and we knew he was leaving as well. And that you get where, I've talked about it earlier, where bands get very, um, where on the way up they'll give you everything. Once they're at the top, they'll restrict you on everything. And the club's a little bit like that. You know, the club want to own everything that you shoot and want to control everything that's shot and, and, and all the rest. And I remember that finally we got granted that, that Ronnie Ranghild would do the interview in the Hilton in Liverpool and I would get a quick shoot with him. And I didn't realise it would be quite as quick as it was. Luckily, I have my hard job on the Liverpool captain's book was making it look like every shot had been done on the same day, which again presented itself with a number of problems because the book took nine months to complete. I took pictures from David Fairclough and, and Jamie Redknapp's garage to Ronnie Whelan's dining room, having to, you know, rearrange that. Tommy, Tommy Smith's dining room. Um, I used the Hilton... Two or, two or three times, and we used the, the racket club opposite a little private members club. But anyway, I took a friend up, we sat up and we waited for Stephen Gerrard. 
the interview overran, which was great for Ronnie and Rangel, but when he walked out, he goes, you got 60 seconds. <laughs> so not wanting, and I think this is what's helped me in a, another part of the story that I'll tell you a little bit more about. I don't flap at that point. If that's what I've got to work with, that is what I'll work with, and I will try and get what I can out of that. Stephen, sit yourself down here. I think I took about 50 shots in 60 seconds, but I was already set up. I already knew it looked roughly right. So once I, t I took the shot, I could get going kind of thing. But he, he caught me off guard, Stephen did. The first time that I did him, I was working for the magazine. Uh, it was while Rafa was in charge. And they were doing a big thing on, on Stephen. I had a number of ideas that I wanted to do with him. And um, I was told I'd have 30 minutes. And when he walked in, he gave me six. And I'd do two covers in that one. <laughs> so, he, yeah, he, he's not got a lot of time <laughs> for, for pictures. And some people are just like that, you know. Uh, I know the, the second time I did him in the middle when I did his captain's boot cover, I got 15 for that. So that was kind of good, you know what I mean? But they had to tell him that I was doing test shots and that it might not be used kind of thing. But I, I pretty much figured once I'd nailed the shot, I showed him, he wasn't going to come back and do it again. That was the shot that we got kind of thing. So the, two different elements really to what you said. A, I'm always looking and observing for a picture that will tell a story, whether or not it's a guy a band member asleep backstage trying to catch, you know, half an hour's nap. The, the funny thing is it does get kind of boring. It does get a bit monotonous being on the road, so people tend to snatch. But that's telling the story backstage, but looking for just different elements when you're shooting live, whether or not it's that moment where he's leaping in the air or the pyro's going off or, or there's that certain light that looks really, really nice. And so how does your approach to storytelling change depending on the type of storytelling and the type of photography that you're, you're doing from photographing a live gig to maybe taking backstage images? Or I know you've done some magazine covers, you've done like football magazine with Sergio Aguero and, yeah. and, and footballers, or maybe you're doing specific album artwork rather than uh, artwork that's maybe ended up in an album. How does your approach change? How do you uh, approach that? How do you maybe plan for that differently depending on what the art, uh, the photography is that you're doing? I, I work... If we, if we look at one element of that, which is my sports book covers, uh, I work with um, Sports Media, owned by Trinity Mirror, just up the road here in Liverpool. work with a brilliant team, Rick, Steve, and... and we look for um, ideas, inspiration. So I, I will always have um, tear sheets of ideas that they want kind of like me to create with and, and, and emphasise or to go with in that direction kind of thing, which is great. The, the Sergio Guerrero book cover, absolutely fantastic. He loved the idea of him and doing his, how he celebrates a goal, which is basically kind of screaming with his mouth open, with his arms down, So, which is fantastic. Always great when you get the person to go with that idea. 
I think it's always more interesting to the people I'm speaking to on this podcast when it doesn't go <laughs> according to plan. And the best one I could tell you about that was um, and one of the nicest book covers I did actually that everybody absolutely loved. But <laughs> boy, it was a story. And um, Craig Ballamy. So I get the call off Steve. Tony, would you fancy going to do Craig Ballamy's book cover? Yeah, right. Craig Ballamy, one of them football players. If he plays for your club, you're absolutely adoring. If he plays for the other one, you're screaming profanities at him. From the... And of course, he, Craig had, I probably at that point, had given me my second best night out away in Europe with Liverpool when we beat Barcelona in the, the Camp Nou kind of thing. So I was, yeah, I'm dead interested in it. And I think what we didn't realise at that point that Craig had done a, a, a lot of um, schools, setting up soccer schools in, in Africa and things like that, he spent his own money and, you know, it was just another side of Craig Bellamy that you didn't know. So we had this idea of doing the devil inside kind of thing where Craig always portrayed the hard man on the pitch, you know, full sleeves of tattoos, all the rest of it. So I said, why don't we have him with him? polo shirt on black and white strong image with him in a strong pose serious but with a cheeky grin on his face kind of thing you know the two sides to Craig Bellamy kind of thing they kind of like that idea then it got expanded on a little bit that we call it the good fellow kind of thing and he would be wearing a short sleeve and kind of like with his tattoos and that lot so we went down that path. I had all these um, printouts of ideas that we wanted to go along, studio shot, indoor kind of thing. So off I packed my car up in this uh, of interest. When you go out on a shoot and you're shooting out uh, on, on a job, I have to pack for all eventualities. So I take four lights with me, so two packs of lights. I take portable studio flash i pay take two backdrops one white one black stands and then all my cameras so you like a pack horse basically there's room for just one assistant i've then got two side soft boxes as well and then an octagon main soft box for me me key light and uh, off we went down to cardiff i'm arranging to meet craig who's going to take us this place to set up my studio so i can do this moody shot of him so um, we have to go to Craig's mum's. <laughs> Interesting. So we pull onto this estate and uh, I knock on the door. Hi, uh, it's Craig again. <laughs> and she's like, oh no, come in, love. He's going to be an hour late. Okay, yeah, no problem. So you're sitting in Craig Bellamy's mum's house while the dog's yapping at your feet and you're watching Jeremy Kyle with it. Okay, so wait for an hour. Lo and behold, black Range Rover pulls up. Craig comes out. And... The first thing that you realise when you meet Craig is he's, he's a little bit standoffish, he's a little bit wary of you, and um, he's a little bit cold, I suppose, you know. And, uh, hi, Craig, yeah, I've got all my ideas here, start showing him and everything else. Um, where can we set up the studio, you know? Where, where can we go and, and say, yeah, I don't want to do any of them. And that's exactly what the stone silence was in the house. <laughs> 60 seconds. Basically, he'd wrote off every idea that, and the months of planning between him, his agent, 
and sports media and being done. So I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, but the last thing that Steve had said to me on the way out of the door was take your portable studio flash because I think he might want to go out in some of the areas that he was brought up in. So sitting in the car and he went, look, I'm not getting bullshit here. Um, I don't want to do any of the studio stuff. I want to do some shots of around here and where I grew up. And because um, people have accused me of, of leaving and buggering off and it's not the case. It's just that I've, I've moved away and got on with my job. So we then spent... And I'm looking at the weather and it's not great. But we then spent an hour outside shooting him in different alleyways that he played football with on our football pitches and, and all the rest. Back playing fields really more than anything than a football. And then the moment we stopped and I said, can we go and set the thing? It started raining. But in this time, I, I shot him in an alleyway on a very shallow depth of field that I then gave it a, kind of like a, a special treatment to called a leaf a lith plug-in that gave it kind of a bit of an oldie-wieldy sepia tone but a lot more contrasty and I remember coming out of the shoot and ringing Steve up and saying hey, he was how'd he go Steve how'd he go I went he wouldn't do anything we wanted but when Andy did the shot that I was on about everybody loved it and the cover came out fantastic so uh, I have learned that my best thing is not to panic. Is to kind of use my experience a little bit and get what I can out of it. You know, when I did Stephen the first time and he chopped it from half an hour down to six minutes, the press agent at Liverpool went red and walked off out the room, just left me to it kind of thing. But what that then endeared me to him that I didn't throw a strop and. And this isn't acceptable kind of thing. I just went, if that's what I've got, that's what I've got. Let's do it, you know what I mean? So that, that's what I've learned more than anything. So do you feel as a photographer you have a particular narrative voice or do you tend to try and disappear into the background? Uh, my, my job, really... Again, a couple of different elements is, you know, when we're talking sports books covers, you want a striking image, so it's always trying to give you two pen a thin that and, and give them something that that's kind of striking because it's helped sell the book. You know, that the, I admit the Sergio Aguero, you know, Rick and Paul came up with that kind of thing, but... Certainly the Craig Bellamy one, you know, I had to... So you're always looking for that kind of strange, <laughs> you, you, you know, that striking image, certainly. Uh, my job when I go out on the road with the band, really, is to blend in the background. I don't... I don't... I, I always feel the best shots are when they uh, just accept that I'm there and they're not playing up to the camera. Certainly you're recording a little bit more real life at that moment and people think they give their hind legs be backstage at a gig nine times out of ten it can be quite monotonous actually quite boring you're waiting an example is you know going out for two weeks in the midwest in America with a, a, a band called Biohazard it was the first time in, in the mid 90s that I'd spent that a length of time on the road I'd always dipped in four or five dates and then dipped out, but like two, two and a half weeks on a bus, 
certainly moving around middle America, you weren't even going either side. And you're slipping into our bandies where you get up at about two o'clock in the afternoon. Quite simply, you aren't sleeping, you're falling asleep till about four or five o'clock after all the gear has been packed away. The crew have had their showers or in the venue or whatever, then got on the bus and you've driven to the next place kind of thing. But then you, the first thing is you look for a shower or you kind of, then there's sound check, then you eat, then the band plays, then they do a bit of meet and greet, and then the story starts. So my job really in all of that is to blend into the background and, and observe it and, you know, photograph, I suppose, mm. what's real life. My job, if I'm honest, Paul, in, in 30 years has changed dramatically. Magazines were very powerful when I started, very powerful. A, a classic example of that was I got invited over one of those amazing pinching myself moments. I, I spent a week at Taylor's house while they not actually recorded one by one, they actually wrote it while I was there. And it was like... The, the, that album was besieged by problems with different things in that lot. And I remember when the album actually came out, Karang only gave it three out of five, right? Which is not a bad review. It's not a great review. It's an okay review. Remember, the band's management went spare. What's this? We thought you guys were all friends. You know, in a minute, I'm just a freelancer. I'm not on the payroll, you know, you know, basically. And... That was the power of the press in them days. You know, bands would be worried when they had an album coming out for how the NME would review it on a Wednesday night because that either made or sank an album. Not many albums did really, really well when they got panned completely in the press. Not in them days, you know. That's how powerful the press was. And so to actually work editorial for a great number of times, now it's completely changed. Now... I dare say if the Foo Fighters or anybody else has got an album come out, kid won't be reading a review for it. He'll listen to it on Spotify first, make his own opinion if he likes three tracks off it, he'll buy it. But it's also swung in the opposite direction where the press, as I say, could help or make a break a band, depending on how much press that they actually got. Now they're in the magazines around, now it's more in, the ball's in your court, you know what I mean? And some bands get this tremendously well, and some bands don't. And I think that the great, the, the great and the bad thing is that there isn't as much money in the industry anymore. You know, bands make money now by touring. You know, and that is how they make the money. And the photography still that when I talk to other photographer friends and things like that, it's still classed as one of them things where. Well, everybody's got an iPhone kind of thing, you know, and it, is it necessary to have a photographer out on the road with them? Well, perhaps if it's going online, it, no, you know, a cam it, it, certainly camera phones are getting better and better, but if you want an archive of your stuff that's of a reasonable quality, as in picture quality-wise, you, you can't go down the iPhone, but... Many bands don't sometimes, you know, and some bands do get it and some bands don't. And it's persuading the bands that don't get it to spend the money. If, you know, it's still 
I, I feel for photographers these days is you're at an age where everybody wants something for nothing because everybody's got a camera on the phone and actually persuading somebody to part with some money for it is, is kind of a difficult deal these days, you know? And I'm kind of glad, glad that I started when I did and I've got this vast back catalogue kind of thing, but it doesn't make my job any easier now either. So I wonder if I could just ask you a few quick fire questions that we ask uh, all of our guests. So who do you think of when you hear the word story? And why do you think of that person or those people? I actually, when I think story, I think of a photographer like Anton Corbin. That Anton Corbin is this massive photographer that had his own style and his own way of developing his pictures. And I go back to the days of analogue when he was doing it on 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 prints, and he had this certain Luke, his, his prints did, that had this certain sepia lift thing to him. But Anton's gift was, even though he charged tremendous, and he's this massive photographer, and he, you know, he's photographed everybody, and certainly from Nirvana to Sex Pistols when he first started, Joy Division, he was Depeche Mode's photographer, U2's photographer. But Anton didn't, have this massive entourage of assistants around him, like Annie Leibovitz or, or any of them, he'd just show up with himself. But most of his pictures would tell a story of, of that moment. And one picture that really inspired me in the mid-90s, especially when I was changing my outlook on, on pictures after Anthony had turned around and said, if you document the band, you'll get far more out of this than just waiting for us to do sessions and shooting it live was he did a picture of Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails and all these people standing around the dressing room, but Trent was just up the corner with his, his head, his hands in his eyes, exhausted after the show. And I looked at that picture and went, he looks knackered, do you know what I mean? After playing and giving it all in a, in a show, and you've got all these people milling around, but there he is trying to get himself together after giving it all. And, that, that's what I think of when I hear things like that. That's what I'm trying to capture at that time to, to give people a little bit of an insight of, of what is happening at that site. You know, sound checking an empty hall before all the people walk in or the huddle two minutes before they go on stage kind of thing. You know, you're just giving people a, a little bit of a glimpse into that, that other life of the band that they like, I suppose. You recommend any good books, websites, blogs, podcasts about storytelling, perhaps within photography? There's a podcast by a photographer called Dan Daniel Dan Kennedy, and he's I've been listening to some of his podcasts. He's he's just done one from a Liverpool lad called uh, Connor. He does Ali Gould's photographies, Calvin Harris's. Again, comes from this time and place, got thousands and thousands of Instagram followers. So his, if you actually type in Dan Kennedy interviews in, in the podcast, he, he's got some interesting ones. Book-wise, I'm a book, book addict. I really am. I, I've got loads from Jim Marshall. He was the godfather of what I do. And um, his pictures of Jimi Hendrix 
from Monterey and Woodstock and, and the doors and, and right the way through the 60s and 70s, the stones and everything else. I've also got books by Annie Leibowitz. You know, you've got to have respect for Annie Leibowitz. She started as a nothing photographer on Rolling Stone and now is this colossal photographer who works for Vanity Fair and all kinds of advertising. Also, Anton Corbin's 1234 is, is a fantastic book of looking at his photography from the go. But also, like other things, um, a book I had for Christmas was uh, My Life in Pictures by Steve McCurry. And he works, he's worked in Afghanistan, Iraq, and now travels around Pakistan and India documenting life there, kind of thing. So I'm actually a book addict, you know, the coffee table's got two, four, six books on and then upstairs there's all plenty of them. So I would certainly recommend any of those. Finally, Tony, where can we find out more about you? Where can we find you online particularly? You can find me at tonywollyscroft.co.uk and Wollyscroft is spelled W-O-O-L-I-S-C-R-O-F-T. My Instagram is redmen1, R-E-D-M-E-N, and the number one. And my Twitter is TonyRedmen1, I think. You can find my stuff around there. Fantastic, Tony. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you very much for coming and talking with us. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Rule the World. Be sure to rate, review and subscribe to the show and visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you and see you next time. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.